Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. May he bless this reading of his word. I wonder what you think the biggest blind spot of Christians today is. What things does God call us to do and to believe that we somehow seem to always forget? I'm sure you've got some ideas. If you're here this morning and you're kind of, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I suspect that you might have um, some particular insights into this. If you're on the outside looking in, so to speak... I would actually really love to hear what you have to say after the service. What are Christianity's greatest blind spots? Is it evangelism? We're not making disciples like Jesus says that we should. Is it mercy? Are we taking seriously the command to care for the poor and the oppressed? Is it prayer? Perhaps it's a particular sin. You'd have to say greed has to be up there, right? How is it that people who believe that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil love money so much? What is our greatest blind spot? Now, it's good for us to ask these questions because we do have blind spots. Bits of God's teaching that we don't see, that we ignore, sometimes that we just neglect. But this morning we're going to consider what I think is our greatest blind spot. And that's holiness. Holiness. My impression is that we don't talk much about holiness, in part because we don't really understand what holiness is. And the end result of that is that we don't really work at being holy or growing in holiness. And I want to suggest that's a really big problem for us. Because if we neglect holiness, we neglect something that lies at the centre of what it means to be the people of God. 
Christians who don't understand or pursue holiness are like Olympians who don't understand the sport that they're supposed to play. Just think about it. They've been chosen. They've been selected. They've been named on the team. They're representing Australia in badminton and they walk out onto the court and they don't know how to play. That, that would never happen, right? That's absurd. Well, last week we began looking at the letter of First Peter and one of the first ways that Peter describes Christians is in terms of holiness. There it is. He addresses his readers back in verse 2 as people who have been called through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That's, that's holiness language. To be a Christian is to be someone who is in the process of being made holy. And the Spirit's sanctifying work has a purpose. Obedience to Jesus. Friends, if you're a Christian, then you're on the holy team. You've been chosen to be holy. You're representing God in the sport of holiness. This is our game. This morning, the Apostle Peter wants to make sure that we know how to play. There's two simple points for us. If you've grabbed a handout, you can see them on the back. Holiness, what is it? And how do we get it? But we can't go any further. Because we've already seen it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to be holy. We can't do this ourselves. And so we're going to stop right now and we're going to ask God to fill us with his spirit so that we might be the holy people we're called to be. Let's pray. Father God, we come here now as your people, as people who have been called to be yours, who have been chosen by you, who are being sanctified by your spirit. Lord, your desire is that we would be holy. Please help us know what this means. We ask that as we read this passage that you would enlighten us, but that you would also motivate us and move us to pursue holiness in our lives so that your name may be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is holiness? Now, I wonder what comes to mind when you actually hear that word. Perhaps you think of, you know, bearded men with halos around them on stained glass windows. That's kind of holy. Perhaps you think of especially religious ceremonies. Maybe what comes to mind for you is a kind of strict legalistic rule-keeping. That's holiness. Well, the word holy simply means to be set apart. A way of distinguishing the, the ordinary things from the special things. It's like the cutlery that your mum has. It's only for special dinners with special guests as opposed to the stuff that you let the kids use. You know, there's the, there's the two cutleries. My mum still has the special cutlery. I'm pretty sure it's never made it onto the table. She's waiting for the queen to come over or something. But in the Bible, it is God who is the Holy One. We sing of his holiness, don't we? Holy, holy, holy. He is the one who stands apart from everything else. There is no one like him. None above him, none before him. We just sung those words, didn't we? He's perfect. He's pure. He's good. He is holy. 
But as Peter says down in verse 15, it's because God is holy that we who belong to him are called to be holy, to be set apart for him. But as we're about to see, being holy, being set apart, isn't about doing special religious ceremonies or following a strict rule book. Now, for us, holiness is something that shapes every aspect of our lives. And so the first thing that Peter urges his readers to do in verse 13 is to, be, is to let holiness shape their personal lives by shaping their desires. Therefore, he says in verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Notice there, Peter begins, therefore. He's just written about about. Sorry, he's just written about how Christians are people who have been given new birth into a living hope. He's just written about how we've been promised a future heavenly inheritance that will never be taken away. And so he says, therefore, because of that, because you've been promised a glorious future, set your hope on that future. Which seems like an unnecessary thing to say. You don't usually have to tell people who have been promised something incredible to look forward to it. You don't have to tell a kid to get excited for their birthday. You don't have to tell a worker to get excited for the long weekend that's coming. You don't have to tell a bride to get excited for her wedding. You shouldn't need to tell Christians to get excited for heaven. And yet Peter does. It it should be a no-brainer. The promise of our future inheritance is so wonderful that it should consume our thoughts. We shouldn't need to be told to set our hopes on this future. But the problem is that our thoughts are consumed with other desires. We're looking for hope in other places. So let me ask you, where where are you looking for hope? Where does your mind take you when you have a moment to dream? What are the longings of your heart that consume you from the moment you wake up in the morning? Is it money, success, fame, comfort? Is it perfect waves at first point? The fish biting in the river? Find food and a bottle of red. Getting the love of that one particular person. Raising successful children. Having a big group of friends and family around you who love you and appreciate you. Are these your hopes? Now don't get me wrong, these things are fantastic. But they're nothing next to the promise of eternal joyful life in the presence of God. They are nothing. And so don't be a fool. Or as Peter puts it here, don't be drunk 
You see that in verse 13, he writes, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace. He's implying that we often don't have sober minds. We're often drunk in our thoughts. You see, a drunk person doesn't know what's good for them, do they? Drunk people dance on the edge of high-rise balconies. Drunk people try to take their car keys and drive home. Drunk people don't know what's good for them. And so Peter tells us to sober up. Stop desiring things that are not good for you or not as good as what God has promised. Don't be a fool. Don't set your hopes on the things of this world. Set your hopes on living with God. When we recognize that God calls us to be his own, and when we consider his promise of an eternal inheritance, it shouldn't be a hard choice for us. We should set our hopes on that, set our desires on that. Make that the longing of our heart. The first way we see holiness expressed is in having rightly ordered desires, desiring what is truly good for us. But as we move on to our second point now, oh, sorry. as we move on to our second point now, we see that holiness also impacts how we think about God. So it impacts our personal desires, it impacts our relationship with God. Because in verse 17, Peter urges his readers to stop and think about who this God is that they worship. He calls them first, there it is, he calls them first to remember that our Heavenly Father is also the judge of the world. He's the one who will one day, he's the one that you will one day have to stand before and give account for the things that you have thought and said and done. Know that God is your judge. Secondly, in verse 18, Peter calls his readers to remember that God is the one who paid to redeem them from their sinful lives, but he didn't pay with money. No, he paid with the blood of his own son, a precious sacrifice, a lamb without blemish or defect. So with those two things in mind, there's a pretty clear implication. If God is the one who is entirely just in condemning you for a lifetime of sin, and if this God is also the one who loves you enough to sacrifice his own son for you, then don't treat him like he's nothing. Live out your lives in reverend fear. Not terror, not crippling fear, but a healthy reverence and respect. I've always been amazed by big wave surfing. I don't want to do it, but I like watching it. One of the things that a big wave surfer will tell you is that fear is necessary. The guy who goes out at Shipstern's Bluff without fear is the guy that comes home without a functioning spinal cord. To be able to ride a monster wave and survive, you need to recognize the power and force of the ocean. You need to have a healthy fear. You need to acknowledge that you are not the one in control and it's only by the mercy of the ocean that you live. Well, friends, holiness is having this kind of fear of God. Holiness is living with the recognition that we are not the ones who are in control. And it's only by the mercy of God that we live. 
Holiness impacts our personal lives. It impacts our relationship with God. And in verse 22, Peter goes on to explain that holiness will also shape our relationship with others. Here, Peter simply assumes that Christians will love one another. Sorry, there it is. It's a given. Christians will love one another. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, he just assumes it. If you've believed the gospel, then you will love each other because if you've believed the gospel, you'll love what God loves. And God loves your brothers and sisters. He sent his son to die for them. So we should love them too. Now, he just assumes you'll love your brothers and sisters, but he doesn't just assume, he also instructs us to love more deeply. He says, if you believe the gospel, you will love each other, but keep loving each other. Love each other more deeply. And in chapter 2, verse 1, that includes removing things that taint our love. He says, rid yourselves of malice, of deceit, of hypocrisy, of envy, of slander, of every kind. They are things that detract from love, that distort and tarnish love. Now, I want to pause here for just a second, because I want you to consider whether you are loving your brothers and sisters here in this church with a love that arises from deep within your heart. We mustn't confuse smiling and being nice with deep love. Now, smiling and being nice is good. Keep doing that. But God doesn't call you to have polite conversation with his people. He calls you to love them. To go out of your way to seek the good of others. To empty yourself so that they might be filled. He calls you to love so much that you will even be willing to have difficult conversations with your brothers and sisters. Where you confront sin in their lives. I think too often we think we're being loving by sort of ignoring the prickly people, the people that, you know, provoke an angry response in us. We just kind of avoid our problems, but that's not love. A holy love means loving even those prickly people with the same love that compelled Jesus to sacrifice himself for their sake. We've seen holiness is living a life that is set apart, wholly devoted, 100% focused on God. It shapes our personal lives as we set our hope on the eternal inheritance that we've been promised and not on the desires of this world. It shapes our relationship with God as we adopt a posture of reverent fear recognizing that God is both the judge and saviour. And it shapes our relationship with one another as we go out of our way to love others, love the people that God loves, and remove anything from our lives which might hinder that love. So that's what holiness is. It's all-encompassing. It covers every aspect of your life. The question is, how do we get it? What do we do to actually grow in those areas? 
How do we ensure that the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives will continue? Well, Peter gives us an answer in verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, I don't know what came to your mind when I talked about holiness, when I first talked about holiness this morning, but often I think what comes to Christians' mind is a sense of guilt. We hear holiness and we go, oh, I'm not good enough, I need to be better, I need to work at it. We start with, I'm not good enough. Just, just think for a moment, how many of your attempts at getting up early to read the Bible or praying more, or trying to be more loving. How many of those attempts started with a place of guilt? And how many of them worked? You see what Peter says here? He says, guilt is a terrible motivator for holiness. The motivator for holiness is not guilt, it's grace. Peter says, if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to mature in your salvation, then like a baby that day and night keeps coming back for more milk, we need to keep going back to the place that we first tasted grace. We need to keep going back to the pure spiritual milk of the gospel. Imagine you go out to a restaurant tonight and you discover the most perfect meal you've ever tasted. All the flavors complement beautifully. The ingredients are fresh and tasty. The serving size is just right. Everything is perfect. Would you ever go to another restaurant? Why would you? If you discover the perfect meal, the most satisfying meal, why would you look anywhere else? Friends, if you have tasted God's goodness in the gospel, if in hearing the message of God's love and commitment to you, your life has been changed, if trusting Jesus has meant that you have experienced this new identity and this new hope and this new joy, if you've tasted God's goodness, keep going back for more. The gospel is a buffet and there is always new and tasty delights to discover. It will keep satisfying you. It will keep growing you. And so Peter says, if you want to grow in holiness, keep going back to the place where you received the most satisfying news in the world. Keep going back to God and his word. Keep reminding yourself of what he has promised you, of what he has done for you. And keep looking ahead to the inheritance that awaits us. Keep trusting him, friends, and he will grow you. Let me pray. Father God, you call us to be holy, but you also give us the resources to grow. We are grateful that by your spirit you are working. 
You are impressing your word and your promises deep within us. And we ask that you would keep doing that so that we might grow. Help us to keep craving the goodness that we have tasted in your word. Help us to keep going back to the gospel. That news that satisfies and delights us. And by doing that, Lord, would you grow us in holiness? Grow us so that we might desire things that are good for us, things that will eternally satisfy. Grow us so that we might fear you and treat you as we should. Grow us so that we might actually have a deep love for our brothers and sisters, people that you love. Lord, would you make us a holy people? so that we may represent you well in this world. That people might look at us and at our lives and at our conduct and see you working through us and delight in you too. We ask this because it's good for us, but we ask it because it brings you glory. And we ask it in the name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.